Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hey guys, it's Albert. We've got a fantastic show coming for you this week. i got takeaways on Russell Wilson, J.J. Watt, Deshaun Watson, Trevor Lawrence. We've got a great guest coming in to help us forecast what the next two months are going to look like in the NFL. And we all know how wild it could get. And like we always do, we wrap up the show with all of your questions in a six-pack. Let's go. All right, welcome in. Combine weeks in the books. There was no combine this year, as you guys know, but there's a ton for us to get to. It's the Albert Breer Show. Um, just to kind of give you guys an idea of where we're at in the NFL calendar, this Friday, um, which is two days from this recording, um, the Pro Day circuit will kick off with the University of Kansas's Pro Day. We've got a couple marquee Pro Days next week. Clemson's got his pro day on March 11th now. Like, as you guys probably know, Trevor Lawrence won't be working out there, but we will get to see guys like Travis Etienne and, and Amari Rogers the day after that on the 12th. Your first real marquee pro day because there's a quarterback at the center of it. That's North Dakota State pro day um, with Trey Lance throwing. And from there, we're off and running. And for the next, you know, three or four weeks, there will be pro days. And we will be getting results from those. And those, of course, are very important, especially without a combine this year. And, you know, right there in the middle of it on March 17th, the league year begins. We've got a great guest in this week that's going to help us break down all of that from free agency to quarterback trades to what's going to happen in the draft. All that stuff is covered with a, our guest this week. We, of course, will get to your questions in a six-pack. But we start where we always do with the takeaways. And my first takeaway from this week, it is time for Russell Wilson and the Seahawks to figure out where they are from a relationship standpoint and try and get this thing nipped in the bud once and for all. And I think what's frustrating for the for the Seahawks here isn't that they're dealing with this now, it's that they've dealt with this on an annual basis. Whether it's the contracts, whether it's been um, you know, the 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 the, the friction between Russell and some of the older defensive players, those Legion of Boom guys, whether it's the grumbling from Russell's camp um, over what's around him. It's just never, it just never seems like there's a totally clean off season where there isn't something going on with Russell Wilson at some level. And, you know, I can see why the Seahawks might be getting to the point where they might be a little fed up with it and why they would at this point want to, again, once and for all, figure out a way to solve this. So to me, like that's what this is about, especially because of all the quarterback movement we're going to see this offseason. I think we all have looked at this and, and are saying like there could be four, maybe even five quarterbacks that go in the top ten. I don't think it'll be five, but you know, at least four quarterbacks are very much in the running to go in the top ten. You could see a lot of veteran quarterback movement at a very high level with guys like Russ and Deshaun Watson at a like kind of like a reclamation project level too with guys like Sam Darnold. And Marcus Mariota, and so if if there ever was an off season to try and figure out where you're at, this would seem to be the one. Um, you know, and, and I don't think you want to wait a year too long on this either. Like I think you want to be in a position where you're saying to yourself, okay, like where are we this is where we are going forward, and either it's fixed or we're moving on. 
And so I think that Russell and the Seahawks need to figure out, like, can we make it through the duration of his contract at the very least? There's three years left on his deal. And, I, you know, I, I think it's it's hard to project seven or eight years out. Who knows where Russell is? Who knows where the Seahawks are? Who knows, you know, who's the coach at that point? Like, it's too hard to project that far out. But can you get through the next few years without incident? Can you get through the next few years where there's not going to be a problem on a year-to-year basis? That's where, that's where I think the key is here. And so if I'm the Seahawks, that's the answer I'm seeking. If I can, great. You know, we'll, we'll, we'll figure out where we're at. We'll adjust some things, some things that we need to adjust, and we'll go forward. If we aren't, this may be the this may be the off season where you do look at potentially separating. And I know that sounds crazy because he was an MVP candidate halfway through last year. Yeah, but I think it's important to assess where you are from a, I guess from a like a global standpoint um, as a franchise. And I think the Seahawks are at that point with their quarterback where they got to figure out where his head's at and whether or not they can get to a place where everybody is. Everybody is operating in lockstep going forward. And he put them in a really tough position, too, with the teams that he picked. I mean, if you look at them, I think if you're trading a Russell Wilson, you want to have some sort of clear path to finding your next quarterback. And you look at, like, the teams that were on that list. The Bears picked 20th. The best quarterback they'd have to deal is Nick Foles. That's not a clear path to finding your next quarterback. The Raiders have the 17th quarterback or the 17th pick. They've got Derek Carr as their quarterback. Maybe you really like Derek Carr. I don't know if he'd be your long-term answer. The Cowboys have the 10th pick and Dak Prescott, but Dak Prescott isn't under contract, so if you were to trade for him, you'd want to get him, of course, signed to a long-term deal. And if you know his being part of the trade is contingent on him either signing the tag or a long-term deal, man, would he have a world of leverage over you. So you'd probably be talking about signing him it's not just liking him, it's liking him at like 40 to $45 million a year. And then if you look at the Saints, they have the 28th pick. I don't think you want to be trading for Taysom Hill. So I, like, like you look at those four teams and there really isn't a clear path to finding your next quarterback. So, you know, I, the way I look at it is you have to have that meeting with Russell. You have to sit down with him. You have to figure, and, and however long it takes, you figure it out. But like you, you have to have that discussion with Russell where you figure out if this is salvageable over the next three or four years. And then if you're going to move them, I mean, you have to say you got to work with us, dude. Uh, my second takeaway, I think maybe we all read the J.J. Watt thing a little wrong. And this is me included. I think we get the idea that these guys go into these sorts of situations just flat out looking to ring chase, right? Like in whatever the easiest path is, like, I don't know, it doesn't matter how I play. It doesn't matter how much make money I make. Just go get me a ring, right? And we all sort of like project and like think that that's how we'd handle it. So go join this team or that team. And, you know, I think there are two things on the J.J. that the the J.J. Watt signing with Arizona, which none of us saw coming, that the J.J. Watt signing with Arizona can inform all of us on. Okay, number one, how these guys play matters. When you put that much work into into something, when you like kind of like when you like almost sign your life away to what you're doing and you might be at the end, your how you personally perform is not irrelevant. Right, and so if you look at JJ Watt over three of the last five years, three of the last five years, he's played less than half the game, half the Texans games. Think about that. Three of the last five years, he's played less than half the the games for the Texans. Like that's a massive amount of time lost on the field. And in only one of those five years, he was really at his level. He had a 16 sack season in 2018. So you know, I can see where if you're JJ Watt, like a big piece of this would be. I want to get back to the level that I'm accustomed to playing at. And so what's the best way to do that? Well, I mean, considering that we're not going to have OTAs, that we're probably, that we probably won't have like mandatory minicamps and maybe that stuff happens, but it doesn't look likely right now. Maybe you want to go to a place where you feel like you can hit the ground running. Well, I mean, they have Vance Joseph as their defensive coordinator in Arizona and Vance was a secondary coach in Houston for JJ's first three years in the league. And Vance Joseph runs Wade Phillips system. Like down to the terminology, it's the same as what J.J. Watt ran, the same as the system J.J. Watt was a part of his first three years in the league. What did J.J. Watt do his first three, three years in the league? He was an immediate, um, an immediate star as a rookie in 2011. Now, he didn't wind up winning Defensive Rookie of the Year. I believe it went to Vaughn Miller that year, and that was a historic draft class. Like You've got seven or eight Hall of Famers in the first half of the first round there. Uh, you know, so but but he was a, an immediate star. 
He was Defensive Player of the Year in 2012, and he was First Team All Pro 2012 and 2013. So, like, he knows going to that system, it doesn't guarantee him anything, but it's as close to a sure thing that he's going to fit in and be able to produce right away as, as any place in the NFL. And the number two, like, like, like that, that last bite of the financial apple matters. I mean, I, let's call it what it is. It was a tight cap situation across the league. Teams that, like, I think he had his eyes on, like Pittsburgh and, and Green Bay, they're in tough spots from a salary cap standpoint. $31 million is $31 million. And if somebody's willing to pay you $15.5 million a year, I can certainly see why you'd do it. So I think those two things are important to remember when we kind of get into this whole ring-chasing argument. And on top of that, I mean, it's like, I, does it look to you like this is like a team that is that far off? I mean, I don't think it's the best place to go chase a ring. But like a year ago at this time, you know, I think a lot of people would have said Tom Brady didn't go to the best place to chase a ring either. And now he's got his seventh ring. So, um, you know, you look at the Bucks a year ago, they were seven and nine. The Cardinals were eight and eight. They've gotten two and a half games better in each of Cliff Kingsbury's first two years. They've got a young quarterback on a rookie contract. It's not like a horrible situation. And so I think too often we're looking at the Cardinals like maybe it's two years ago when they had maybe the worst roster in the league. They've rebounded in a pretty big way the last two years to where you see some of the positive momentum. And I know they didn't finish the year the way they wanted to, but you can see some of the positive momentum where it, you know, like, like if, if J.J. Watt wanted to, on top of the other two things, go to a place where maybe he could be like one of the last pieces and putting him over the top and making him a true championship contender. Like Arizona is not the worst place in the world. Takeaway number three. Um, we've talked a ton about Deshaun Watson on the, on here on the podcast. So I'm not going to belabor about where they, I'm not going to belabor the thing on where they are and everything else. We know like that, you know, for right now, Deshaun Watson standing firm that, you know, he doesn't want to play for the Texans anymore. The Texans are standing firm and that they're not going to trade him. And so something's that that's what makes it so unpredictable. It's like something there has to change. But I wrote this in my column this week, and I think it's an important piece of this. Not whether it will happen, how it would happen if it did happen, right? And so, you know, my buddy Tom Pelissaro over at NFL Network had the report last week that the Texans have gotten voicemails from teams. And so I think it sort of highlights the way that I think people who know Nick Casario best feel like this would go if he did eventually get to the point where he was going to trade him. And I'll lay that out for you, okay? There's not going to be a circus. I don't think he's going to be out there in the market for a week. I don't know that his agent, David Mulligetta, is going to get permission to seek a trade. And he has no trade clause, which complicates it a little bit. But I would not be surprised if and again, I still don't think he's going to be traded anytime soon. But if he were traded, I would not be surprised if the way it happened is Nick Casario takes in all those offers and maybe he has like post-it notes on it in his office or whatever. He takes in all those offers. He takes stock of those offers. He's getting good offers and sort of treats it like a silent auction. And then one day in a very sudden way, the thing is just done. So... If it does happen, it wouldn't surprise me if that's how it happens. I'm not saying it will happen. In fact, you know, for right now, it seems like the Texans have their feet firmly planted on the ground on this one. But if it does happen, it wouldn't shock me if that's how it happened. Okay, takeaway number four. Um, you know, we've heard some buzz about Zach Wilson potentially passing Trevor Lawrence. Like, don't listen to it, okay? Uh, and I'm going to say this again, and I can't be more clear about it. Um, you know, I, I've been doing this for 15 years now. I talk to people who've been working for teams and working in scouting for a lot longer than that. And, you know, when you go back in the archives and you look at the way that quarterbacks are graded, the way quarterbacks are assessed, in my lifetime, I was born in 1980. In my lifetime, there are four quarterbacks that I think are have been viewed in NFL circles as a cut above everybody else. John Elway, 1983. Peyton Manning in 1998, Andrew Luck in 2012, and Trevor Lawrence in 2021. What does that mean? Well, let me give you guys some context here. Generally, drafting quarterbacks is a crapshoot. And we know that from the fact that, you know, we 
put out there, whatever it was, you know, I think it was in January, that you know there was no quarterback drafted between 20, 2009 after Carson Wentz was traded. There'd be no quarterback um, drafted between 2009 2016, still with his original team. That's 20, 22 quarterbacks drafted in the first round of the, over that time, all 22 gone. There are some non-first rounders, Russell Wilson, Dak Prescott, but the first rounders, 22 Drafted by their teams, 22, gone gone from the teams that drafted them. So we, if you take that into account, that it is a little bit of a crapshoot. What separates Luck and Manning and Elway is that they were seen as sure things. They were seen as you draft him and there isn't a variable. You're going to get a really good quarterback. You're going to get a quarterback who's going to become a top five quarterback. And... Like to me, the best way to illustrate that is by looking at who the second quarterbacks taken in their drafts were. In 1983, the second quarterback taken was Todd Blackledge out of Penn State, went to the Chiefs. In 1998, the second quarterback taken was Ryan Leaf out of Washington State, went to the Chargers. In 2012, the second quarterback taken was Robert Griffin the third out of Baylor, went to Washington. Now. All three of those guys had talent. All three of those guys flashed a little as pros. All three of those guys ultimately didn't work out. Meanwhile, Elway won two Super Bowls. Manning won two Super Bowls. And Luck, I mean, instantly, in the end, instantly, took a team that was rebuilding to the playoffs, went one round further in each of his first three years, and then injuries sort of wound up getting him. But... I think the direction he was going in, like he was going to be, I I think he would have maybe won multiple Super Bowls with um, what Chris Ballard and, and Frank Reich have built there. So that's what you're looking at with Trevor Lawrence. Like Zach Wilson, I'm not saying he's not a really good prospect. I think he is. But, and there's talent there and everything else. I think Zach Wilson could get there. I don't know if he's a sure thing because I think sure things are very, very rare when it comes to quarterbacks coming in the NFL. So much has to do with environment, you know, who they're going to be playing with, who they're going to be coached by, all of that. Trevor Lawrence is a sure thing. And that's why I would be willing to wager that in all 32 draft rooms, you would find Trevor Lawrence atop the quarterback board. Finally, takeaway number five. It sucks losing the combine, right? Like it sucks that we can't talk about all of these guys this week. And so really quick, I want to, again, I want to direct you to the Monday column, but I want to run through, um, you know, our list of who would have been the combine freaks um, of 2021 and who we'd all be talking about right now if there had been a combine. So I'm going to take you through the five events, the five big events. I think it's five. And then I'm going to take you through the all around before we get to our special guest. First, the guy I had projected to win the 40, Anthony Schwartz from Auburn. If you're not familiar with him, get familiar with him. He, in all likelihood, um, would have run in the low 4-2s. Like he told me his goal was to run a 4-2-1, which would have broken the record set by John Ross in 2017. He ran a 4-2-2, was drafted in the top 10 by the Bengals. So... Like my sense is he would have he would have broken that record. Why? Well, because he's got a track background. In fact, his track background is so strong that if he had chosen track out of high school rather than football, there's a good chance he'd be going to Tokyo in the summer as an Olympic sprinter. So Anthony Schwartz was had there um, in the bench press. Ben Cleveland, a guard from Georgia. It was fun talking to scouts about this guy. One compared him to Thor. Another said he looks like the guy from Game of Thrones. Another said like he could be in movies someday if football doesn't work out. Another said he's got a future in the WWE. And he has said publicly he thinks he would have broken the combine uh, bench record. He would have had a shot at. The, re- the record's 49 reps at, at 225. From what I understand, he had a real shot at breaking that record. 50 reps at 225 pounds would be bananas. The three-cone drill, um, I gave this one to Alabama receiver Jalen Waddell, who I think would have done well in all of the drills, would have done really well in the 40, would have done really well in the short shuttle, uh, would have done really well in the vertical jump. And if you watch his tape, I mean, he may be the most fun guy to YouTube in this year's draft class, just like an absolute human joystick player. And so Jalen Waddell was my winner of the three-cone drill, the short shuttle, Went to UCLA, running back slash receiver. He's sort of like, I I think teams look at him as like sort of a third down back slash 
slot receiver type, Demetric Felton. And Felton had a big week at the Senior Bowl, really good in short area. Um, short areas, you can kind of like, t- he's like one of these guys who can kind of, you know, like work his way out of the phone booth, so to speak. And so I gave Felton the short shuttle and I got actually, I think it was six events then. Yes, it's not five, it's six. The vertical jump I, I gave to uh, Illinois receiver Josh Imitor Bebe. I think that's how you pronounce his name. The reason why, he actually jumped 46 inches at the opening. It's a high school showcase that you know, Nike runs in Oregon every summer in 2015. Jumped 46 inches. That jump would have tied the NFL combine record, which was set by Jaguar safety, Gerald Sensabaugh in 2005. So if he could re- just reproduce what he did at 17 years old, and this was six years ago, what he could do, what he, what he did, 17 years old, then he would have tied the combine record. And the, finally, the broad jump, I gave it to Oklahoma wide receiver Tylen Wallace. This was a little bit of a tough one. There were some other names in there. Um, Virginia Tech's Caleb Farley, Syracuse's Afatu uh, Melifonwu, uh, Purdue's Rondale Moore all came up. Um, Tylen Wallace was another one where I sort of went on past performance. He was a champion triple jumper in high school. And so I gave him the broad jump, but there were a number of competitors. There were a number of, of contenders for that one. And certainly I think that was like a little bit of a more difficult one to project. Then the all around, I gave this one to Michigan's Quiddy pay. He's 271 pounds. He had the third fastest three cone drill in Michigan's program last year. Think about that at 271 pounds, the third fastest three cone drill in the Michigan program. Faster than a lot of receivers, faster than a lot of corners. I mean, that that is bananas. And he's got a great story, too. He's actually up from my neck in the woods. He's from close by in Rhode Island, um, went to Bishop Hendrick in high school, and he's got an incredible story. That's something that you want to go and take a look at. If you guys you know, go to YouTube and check it out, like uh, it, I believe it was Tom Rinaldi did a story for game day last year on him. Just a fan, like seems like a fantastic kid and a fantastic story. His family immigrating from Africa. Be sure to check that out. And we will get to our special guest right after this. Mother's day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. All right, well, since the offseason's underway and really kind of the player acquisition phase of the offseason is about to rev up, um, I wanted to have a former general manager on to kind of talk about, you know, the challenges that are facing teams right now. And it's just such an interesting time in the NFL with certain things changing. I think, you know, the challenges for some of the teams being a little different than they've been in the past. And so to do that, we're going to have our buddy back. the former general manager of the New York Jets, former executive vice president of the Miami Dolphins, and now you can catch him on ESPN. And uh, we're going to promote this a little bit more at the end. And and with the 33rd team, which is a great, great concept. Uh, he's Mike Tannenbaum. Mike, welcome in. Albert, great to be with you. And most importantly, my former Needham Times teammate. Good That's right. You, That's right. Ex-Needham Times sports editor right here. So... Uh, he's from Needham, Mass. I'm from Sudbury, Mass. Me and Mike grew up about 15 minutes apart from one another. So, uh, so yeah, let, let, let's start here, Mike. Um, you know, I want to go through each of the quarterback situations, um, but I want to start with a broad question. Like, do you think that the way that you have to handle that position is changing now? Um, you know, we've seen, like, obviously what's happened with Russell Wilson over the last few weeks, what's happened with Deshaun Watson over the last couple of months, and um, – you know, and, and obviously Matthew Stafford asks out, gets gets his request there. Just just globally, do you think that the way that the quarterback situation has to be handled, is being handled, is different than, than than it was even maybe five or ten years ago? There's no question about it. And if we were having this conversation a year ago, let's just throw the pandemic out because obviously we could talk about that for you know, unfortunately, what's done to society and football. Um, but if we were just talking from a football standpoint 
a year ago, we're talking about this great 10-year partnership between the league, the Players Association, and how well, there's a lot of work to do. But, boy, the, the league and the trajectory of where everything is is tremendous. And, boy, that really changed overnight because I do think – well, we saw it a little bit with Jalen Ramsey, Calais Campbell. We are seeing player-led movement like we've never seen before. And so much so, Albert, that I'm sure, just to pick a situation – Clark Hunt is sitting there saying, you know what? I better go check in on Patrick Mahomes. I need to go have lunch with him every six months because a year ago, you get Patrick Mahomes signed and in the old paradigm, Albert, we're done. Put your feet up on the desk. I got this guy. He's under contract for eight years. Go have fun. Let's win. And we're good. And that's just not the case anymore. And for teams to think that it isn't, they could be seeing themselves as the next Seattle, Green Bay, or Houston and I think fundamentally what it's going to do is it's going to put more pressure, and I would say not just pressure, but accountability on the vertical aspect of organizations. And what I mean by that, it's just not the head coach who's grinding every day or the coordinator or the position coach about all the things that go on on a day-to-day -day basis, but it's going to create more accountability at the ownership level. And candidly, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, and when you look at some of these quote unquote hot spots, like part of it is the fundamental disconnect between the owner and the quarterback. So like if you're the owner, that means, I mean, this is almost like I, I, I've always thought like quarterbacks are sort of quasi management, like they're not management, but because of like the role that they play, because of the, they're the face of the franchise, it's almost like. They're like quasi management. Do you think it's like maybe even moving a little bit more in that direction now where, like you said, you have to check in with your quarterback. Maybe you want to make sure that your quarterback has a heads up on things that you're doing. Like, is it like, do you think it's moving? Like, is that the right way to look at it? That maybe this is moving more in the direction of quarterbacks becoming more like management. Well, let's face it. Like the whole relationship, it's an art, not a science. I went through it a couple of times in my career. Chad Pennington and Ryan Tannehill in particular, where we had head coaching searches. And I told both of them, like, you will be involved with the search. I want the candidates to talk to you. Candidly, I felt like both those players were a reason why a, a coach would want to come coach Chad Pennington or Ryan Tannehill. And I really valued their input. But I also told them that, look, you're not making the decision. Your job is to play quarterback, but you're going to meet with some of these coaches very quietly, very discreetly, but we're going to do that. And I think, well, I know both those players appreciated it, and um, it, it it didn't impact the process in a very meaningful way, except to say that we got input from other players as well, which is something that you want. And I think there's a way to do it in an appropriate way, a time and a place, and the proper context, Albert. So there are certain players like in my career that really helped me. You know, I, I would tell you that one of the mistakes I made in my career was when we cut Jericho Cotri at the Jets. And Jericho Cotri at the time was an aging, declining player who was an A-plus in the locker room. And I had a lot of players from the Jets come up to me and just tell me that, that I blew it because he solved so many problems that either Rex nor I knew about. And I really took that as a great lesson for me that, you know, being a leader is being a great listener sometimes. And if you're an owner and you're Clark Hunt, you better be listening to Patrick Mahomes often because he will see things that you'll never see at his level. And it's the old expression, Albert, don't let small things, small things become big things. Did you ever benefit from listening? Like you bring up Chad in New York, and I'm assuming that was probably during the process of hiring Eric, right? Like, and then Ryan in the process of hiring Adam. Right. Did you benefit from listening to them? Did you benefit yeah. from, from that in any way? Absolutely. And there was a lot of players over the years that I benefited from getting their, you know, feedback, you know, people like Curtis Martin, like just like the wisdom they have with Damian Tomlinson, Jason Taylor, Brett Favre, just on and on Mike Pouncey, like really, really smart people that are unbelievably insightful. Um, and I always felt, and if you saw, if you look at coach Belichick carefully over the years, this was an idea that I try to take from him, which is, if you look at the way he's constructed that organization, and this is not perfect, but over the years, you basically have a leader in every position group. And I wanted, for example, LaDain Tomlinson to impact the younger players at the running back for the Jets for years to come. Mike Pouncey, who had an unbelievable work ethic at the Dolphins to impact some of the younger offensive linemen 
if you can have a leader in every position group, that's how you have sustainability. And that's what's known as legacy. And I think when you listen to certain players, they can really give you insights that you can sit in your office and watch tape till two in the morning that you can't get. Now, some players you can't trust. Mm -hmm. They don't have a lot to offer, but more, more of them do than people realize. But I remember like, even like when you were with the Jets, like with Rex, like I, I was Jim Leonard right in the secondary. It was Bart Scott at linebacker and you brought in a D lineman and I can't remember the name of the guy, but there was one, I remember there was one guy in every position group even then, right? Like when you hired Rex that like was sort of going to be like a, the messenger, right? Like the guy who's going to be kind of the example to everybody else, but then B like, like you said, like somebody that you can kind of bounce off, bounce things off of and kind of get information from the locker room from. Yeah, and, and, and now spin that forward 12 years later, you know, Bart Scott's a, a national broadcaster with an incredible career, and Jim Leonard's going to be a head coach. It's not right. if, but when, and at what level, you know, and I remember seeing Jim in the hospital after he had a really bad injury and just talking to him, like, Jim Leonard was a coach back then. He just didn't have the title, and what an insightful, tough player he was. Um, and like I said, there was countless ones over the years, and I think – that's an underrated aspect of like managing a team in an organization, Albert, is to get feedback. You know, it's just a big part of my philosophy is who you are in life is how you treat people that can't help you. The waiter, the waitress, the driver. Yeah. And when you talk to your equipment people and the third trainer and the rehab person, they can tell you who the good dudes are. They can tell you who the assholes are. And that's really part of running an organization. Like pay the good dudes and get rid of the people that aren't. Right. Absolutely. Okay. So let's get into the quarterbacks a little bit. I just want to play kind of like a what if game with, uh, with you on a couple of these guys. So let's start with Dallas. What would you do if you were the Cowboys right now with Dak Prescott? It's obviously kind of, I think it's gone pat gotten past the point where you can ask the guy to take a hometown discount. You know, he, he played in a contract year in 2019, played another contract year under the tag in 2020, suffered a very serious injury. Uh, if you're Dallas, how do you handle Dak now? Well, first, I try to wind back the clock 48 months. You know, we've talked about this. It feels like forever. Like, they made a mistake two years ago. They should have signed him instead of Zeke. And now it's going to cost them a lot more money. And the caps are going to go down. But approximately speaking, his tax will be about 20%. So if you're Jerry Jones, it's now or never. Get the deal done, which will allow you to get the cap room to improve your team. And when you talk to a lot of personnel directors around the league, Albert, next year's quarterback draft is mm -hmm. awful. Keaton yeah. Slottis right now is like the only one with a first-round grade. And the reason that's consequential is if you're Jerry Jones, if you don't get this deal done now, I wouldn't wait till July 15th. If you don't get this deal done now, who's your quarterback in September of 2022? It's not Dak because he's graduating. He's out the door. There's one quarterback in next year's draft. So are you paying – Dak Prescott, upwards of $38 million and drafting one in the first round this year, that's a bad use of resources. Like you either get a long-term deal done with Dak or you draft a first-round quarterback. And to me, they have to solve their long-term situation between now and the draft. How do you like – I mean, I guess it's sort of like – like from a negotiator standpoint, isn't it like – it's finding the number he can't say no to, right? Like, is that the right way to look at it? Because I, I, like, I look at it like he can sit on his hands and make thirty-seven this year, and then either they have to give him fifty-four or free agency at twenty-eight next year. So you got to do better than that. So I guess for the negotiator for the Cowboys, you know, and it's Todd Williams there, like you'd have to sort of find the number that Dak can't say no to, right? Yeah, my approach would be like, we're going to try to make this a win-win DAC. We have to give you the generational wealth and marketplace deal that you deserve. Mm -hmm. With that said, we also need to know that we can put a good team around them. So we want you to crush it on the guaranteed dollars over four years, whatever that number is, 110, 120, like come in with a really strong guarantee and then just work like as hard as you can to lower that average per year. Ideal. I just don't see him taking a deal less than 39 because I just don't see yeah. him taking a deal that's less than that. But I would work really hard to be 35, 36 million. Um, and some of the other tactics I've used in the past, Albert, is to say, like, look, Dak, we want to do a six year deal. And maybe the first three years is at 39 million and the six years is at 36. Like, there should be some sort of sweet spot. Some of the best compromises I ever came up with, I knew that when we got off the phone, 
agent was going to sell to the client like, hey, this is going to be X. And I'm talking to the owner. I was like, no, the value of this contract is really Y. And right. reasonable people could see it differently. But that number, to answer your question, has to have a massive, massive guarantee, well north of $100 million, And then try to really work your tail off if I'm Todd Williams to be at 35 or 36 million for as many years as I can get. And I would think like, it's probably like, there's probably a, I guess a relationship part of like saying like, we're going to go and do it now. Like we're not waiting until July 15th. Like we want to get it done now and we're going to be aggressive because you're our guy. Right. Like, and do it while he's still hurt. Even like, you know, like he's still coming back from the injury. Like there's going to be, I guess some like emotional capital that you can use there and showing him, like, hey, we're not sitting on our hands. We're going to aggressively go and get this done because you are our guy. Without question, I'm taking it a step further. I would go see him. I would talk about the plan around him. Um, oftentimes, you know, doing these big, big extensions for quarterbacks, Brian Tannehill, Vinny Testaverde, even when we acquired Brett Favre, like, hey, here's our plan. Like, you, you alluded to it earlier. Like, there's a way to do it in an artful way where they're not management, but like, hey, Dak, here's your cap number. We can't make it 37.8. Like it needs to be 27.8. Here's the 10 million. We got three DBs that are about to walk out the door. Like we need to sign at least two of them. So here we, we got to get this deal done. We got to get it done right now. And as soon as we hang up the phone with you, you know, we're going to call their agents and get going. And we're going to try to keep two of those three guys. We lost Byron Jones. That was our fault. He's a good player. We can't let that happen again. Okay. Um, Next one. If you're Houston, what do you do with Deshaun Watson? And, you know, and for those who don't know out there, we've laid this out a few times, but, um, you know, Deshaun's basically saying, um, and he's not backing down from his trade request. And, you know, right now, uh, the Texans aren't taking calls, but they're getting calls. And it feels to me, Mike, like it's like a really tough spot for Nick Casario to be in because either. His first major move as the general manager of the Texans is going to be trading away a 25-year-old franchise quarterback, or it's going to be saddling his first-year head coach with an almost impossible situation as he tries to build his program. So if you're Nick Casario, what do you do? It's definitely the latter, in my opinion. First of all, I think Cal McNair has to get involved. So there's a lot to unpack here, but Deshaun Watson signed a contract after they traded DeAndre Hopkins. Like That bears repeating. So something happened from the date of that contract until this thing went off the rails. The one guy that could fix it is Cal McNair. The most important person in this franchise is Deshaun Watson. It's not Nick Casario. It's not David Coley. It's Deshaun Watson. That's why he's getting $39 million a year. So if I'm Cal McNair, go fix it. Now, if he doesn't want to meet with you, my response is, look, we've seen it already. Andrew Luck retired. If you decide to retire, we totally understand and respect that but we can't trade you because we're building an organization for the long term, and we can't allow players not to honor their contract. So while we're willing to work really hard to fix whatever went, went wrong, if that doesn't work for you, Deshaun, we totally understand it. The other option is you can simply retire and we'll move forward and shake hands and walk away. But the, the option of you playing in the NFL, not under this contract, isn't available so let's really work hard at, at the options that are available. How like how important are precedents? Because you went through that. I know you went through that with Revis, right? With his yeah. holdout. Like, like how important is it? Like as a general manager, especially when you're a new general manager, setting the right tone, setting precedents, like and understanding that, you know, maybe the move you make with one player, especially a really prominent player, could have, I guess, reverberations in the way that you are able to do business going forward massive and significant reverberations for a long period of time, Albert. That's why you have to handle this very delicately and you have to say it in the most respectful, earnest way is like, Deshaun, you sign a contract and when you sign a contract, it has consequences. It means something. So we apologize for whatever reason, like you feel very offended, which is something we don't feel good about. And we're going to work really hard to fix, but you did sign a contract and that does mean something. And I think why Nick is in such a hard position, you've kind of already laid it out, but to take it a step further. So you have those conversations and he seems pretty dug in that he's not going to play. Now, what do you do? Are you going to go play with AJ McCarron, Albert? And here's the other thing, like what free agent is going to want to go there um, until that situation is clarified. And that's why I think they're in a really, really tough spot. 
if you trade him, which you can make the objective case, hey, go trade him to the Jets for three ones and Quinn and Williams or to the Dolphins for three ones or Christian Wilkins, great. But the best drafters of all time, the Ron Wolfs of the world, they're at 58 to 60% success rate. And I'd rather have the certainty of a high-character quarterback in Deshaun Watson than three ones. The other thing we've learned recently is this whole notion of aura of association, Albert, which is look at Tom Brady. Like Players walk to play with him. Whoever Deshaun Watson is, players will come. So they'll have plenty of ways to add players. I, I just – and knowing Nick and watching Nick, I'd be surprised if he would trade him. Yeah, it's interesting too because it's like – you know, I feel like with Nick, like – People make the mistake of thinking he's Belichick. And, you know, I'd heard this thing about him where, like, somebody who knows him well said, like, well, I don't think that a coach like Bill works as much in the NFL anymore. And it seems like a strange thing to say for somebody who's six rings as a result of working with Bill Belichick. But I, the, the, the sense I got was, like, Bill's sort of grandfathered in. And so you need to do things differently. You need to reach athletes differently now. And I think his hire of David Culley like reflects that, right? Right. Reflects like it's a very different person than Bill Belichick. And like, I just think like there's, you know, this feeling like, Oh, well, you know, Bill would trade Nick, Bill would, Bill would trade Deshaun. You know, we've seen Bill callously trade players away before. And I, I just don't think Nick thinks that way. Like, I don't think, I think Nick is like more kind of his own guy, you know, and has his own ideas on how things have to work in 2021 that are very different than the way that the Patriots may have been built the last 20 years. And I got to tell you, though, like what's interesting about what you said, Albert, I think what I see a little bit differently is I'm not sure if Belichick would trade Deshaun Watson. I'm oh. not so sure. <laughs> yeah. You know, he if he feels like, you know what, like the best thing for us is for you to be here and you sign a contract, then we're going to have those discussions. But um it's a very fine line that Nick's trying to walk here because if you trade Deshaun Watson, what's going to what would keep me up at night is there's going to be some other issue that comes up in the next two years, and if there's going to be some good player that's like, you know what, like I got paid, I got my security, and I don't like my coordinator. He's not putting me in a great position. I'm out of here, and all I have to do is run the same play Deshaun Watson, and, and I'll be out of here, and. The locker room holds you accountable. And that's why this is really, really difficult. And one of the other things I would do just to take it behind the curtain is if I'm Nick Casario, I'm looking to my left and my right, and I'm saying to Cal McNair, and I'm saying to David Culley, like, for one year, we're not talking about this. The next time we talk about Deshaun Watson is in February of 2022. If he's not here, it's a season-ending injury. He's not available. And we are going to go 100 miles an hour to put the best team on the field. And we, we're not going to even blink for a year. And then go from there. Um, and that's where um, I think that's the mindset you really need to have. So do you like, like, how do you rebuild that relationship then? Like, cause I know you, I'm sure you've got stories of guys that weren't happy with you, that weren't happy with the team, both from New York and Miami. I like, I'm sure every general manager has those. Like, how do you go about rebuilding the relationship? Like beyond just saying, like you said, like, like you're under contract, like what do you do to show him? Like you're still my guy. Yeah, I think it's three things. It's about listening, listening, and listening. And what I mean by that is sit down and listen. Like, don't concentrate on the what. Like, it's not – we know – everybody in America knows that Deshaun Watson's upset. So let's not concentrate on the what. Let's concentrate on the why and fix that. So I'll tell you a good story. When Brett Favre was available, Albert, the first conversation I had with basically Green Bay and – his agent, Buzz Cook, was like, Mike, you have no chance. He is 100% going to Tampa Bay because he knows John Gruden. He played for him. It's a 30-minute plane ride across the Bay of Gulf of Mexico, and he doesn't know you, Eric Mangini, Brian Dayball, Brian Schottenheimer, hates the cold and hates New York. So you have no chance whatsoever to make Brett Favre a jet. I hung up the phone. We, we had our meeting and everyone was like, what's going on with Favre? I'm like, oh, great news. Like, we have a real chance. Like, I know exactly what we need to do. So let's go do it, guys. So they had no idea <laughs> that it was a category. Categorically, it was a no from both. Green and it was Bay. like a no, like five different ways. <laughs> like the way yeah. you explained it. I yeah. like, and I was being a great listener. I knew exactly what we had to do. I'm like, fellas, I have the answers to the test. And we're just going to knock it out one after the other. And let me tell you something, Albert. 
the world's starting to see the greatness of Brian Dayball. But you know what Brian Dayball did? He presented a Brett Favre that we knew that Brett Favre loved crossword puzzles. So on day one, what Brian Dayball told Brett Favre, like, you're going to learn our offense through crossword puzzles. So we had one good day. And then Eric Mangini, who one of the things that's you know disappointing to me is like people don't see this other side of Eric Mangini, who could be funny, nurturing, can mm-hmm. really connect with people, had the most unbelievable conversations with Brett about life, raising their daughter in the Northeast, all the different places they could go, the things they could do. And like we had a good day there. Then Shadi had a shot at him. Hey, here's who influenced my career as a play caller. Here's what I see when you play. We think you could crush it here, and here's why. So we checked another good day off. And all I want to do is keep making progress. Like we were great listeners, and then we attacked the problem. And obviously, you know, we were able to get that one over the finish line. And the point being is like, hey, Deshaun, like, let's go through this. Like, is it Jack Easterby? Like, what would, like, why are we here? And more importantly, how can we fix it? And by the way, hold me accountable. Like, I just want to have a great meeting. And we have a great meeting today. We're going to have another one tomorrow. And then you want Easterby gone? Great. Who, who else? You know, like, you're the most important person here. We are going to fix this together. So, oh, and I, I you guys found a place for, for Brett to go hunting in North Jersey too, right? Like, yeah, <laughs> you showed I mean, him the... You know, Albert, like, that's what recruiting is. Find out what somebody wants and then yeah. show them a whole bunch of it. So what I did with Brett was he likes to hunt and fish. So we took Google satellite images of a local farm that was about 15 minutes from the facility. And I said, I put a presentation together. I said, here's where you're going to be on Tuesdays. And I'm going to find you. You have mandatory hours that you have to hunt and fish. It's 15 minutes from the facility. So Monday is rehab. It's going over the game. It's getting the first initial thoughts of next week's game. But you must hunt and fish on Tuesday or I will find you. Wow. Wow. And it was right there. 15 minutes. I've been to, you know, that, that, that Morristown area. So it's actually, it's, it's not what most people would think of Jersey. That's, that's for sure. Um, all right. Last one. Then what would you do if you were Seattle with Russell Wilson? This is a harder one. I think Russell Wilson has a real, like, I'm going to tell you two statistics that are shocking. Mm -hmm. Albert, take how many, take a guess on how many players on the Seattle Seahawks offense besides Russell Wilson aren't on their rookie deal. Aren't you said are not on the rookie deal? Yeah, Dwayne Brown is one. Yeah, Tyler Lockett is another. Excellent. One more. It's is it's it Brandon Shell. It's Shell. But the okay. point is, they only have three other <laughs> veterans on from offense. Wow. And since 2015, they've only drafted three seven offensive players in the top three rounds. So if I'm Russell Wilson, and just think like he's like you and I, right? Loves football, can't get enough of it reads si.com every monday morning for monday morning quarterback <laughs> and when he watches the highlights and sees Patrick Holmes do, do this and Aaron Rodgers does that and i only have three veterans i only have three veterans like that's not right or we're drafting defensive players left and right and we give up two ones for Jamal Adams who's a great player but why should i keep signing up for this when i'm seeing that so the only thing i would say is Taking things public in this day and age, I think, just becomes uh, uh, makes things a lot harder to fix, which to mm-hmm. me is you know where they are. But I can understand why he's frustrated. Yeah, and I think that was part of it too. Like I, I think Aaron Aaron Rodgers gave him like cover to do that, you know, like because it was right before, and so Aaron complains about his situation, and or it wasn't even a complaint. It was like I don't know where my future might be, and it sort of gave Russell cover to go and say something. You know what I mean? Which was his whole thing is like, I'm going to put urgency on the situation. I'm going to take like the two things that are undone here, my offensive line and my, and, and, and my desire to, you know, kind of have a global view of where we're going organizationally taking those public. And you're right. Like, I do think that that's, um, yeah, I think that those, I, I think when you go public, it's just, I mean, that history follows you in a different way, doesn't it? It does. And unfortunately I dealt with it a lot in my career where, Players, you know, went public either because they wanted to or their agents. And I just found like the best way to solve problems is look, you don't think Pittsburgh and New Orleans and New England deal with the same issues every other team. They've just done a really good job of keeping the noise down. I think one of the things like when you look at the Browns and, you know, Kevin Stefanski, one of the great things I think they've done, Albert, is like 
they've taken the noise down. And I think that's a very underrated aspect of trying to run a team in this day and age. There's no question in Cleveland it made a world of difference. All right, last thing. This is going to be a different free agency period, right? Like, so we're two weeks out now. I think it's March 17th that it kicks off. Um, cap is coming down. Lots of teams are going to have to cut players. Um, and there's going to be, I think, a glut on the, on the market. So, you know, having been through so many of these and having been through like sort of similar situations in 11 and 12 and 13, when we wake up on March 18th, March 19th, what are we going to be talking about? some really good players looking for jobs. So I think there's going to be a handful of guys, like if Shaq Barrett doesn't get tagged, obviously Dak's going to get tagged, but there'll be a couple guys that will do really well. Um, but there's going to be a lot of good football players. Like we can go back to the Super Bowl, like talking about teams like Kansas City, like to me it's the Daniel Sorensons, the Sammy Watkins of the world. Like I think they may get some decent deals, but there are going to be a lot of B to B plus players that we're going to be like, wow. And if we're having this conversation on April 1st, Albert, mark my words, we could take a team of 22 players on offense and defense and put a really good football team available together of just players who are available. On April 1st. So you think they're going to linger for that long, for two There's weeks? There's no question about it. Because what's going to happen is it's going to be – agents are going to be reluctant to pull the trigger on deals where they're going down. And I think what we're going to see is good players want to be patient and two short-term deals with – this whole notion that hopefully it'll start spiking back up in 2022. Yeah. I had somebody say something interesting to me where they thought like teams are going to go to players now and they're going to offer a guy a deal and they're going to say, you got three hours to take it or else we're moving on to this guy. And then they're going to, they're going to say to the player, there are five other guys that are like you that we, that, that we can go and get. So we like you. Well, we're willing to offer you this, but this we're giving you a few hours to take this. And if you don't, we're moving on to the next guy. And Albert, like we may look back and say, like JJ Watt's deal was a great deal for JJ Watt um, because there's three other pass rushers that are, you know, it'll be interesting. Does Hassan Reddick get paid? Marcus Gould. Now, I'm not saying like they're the same player as JJ Watt, but there's going to be some players that are just this is a bad year to be a free agent. There's no question that JJ Watt, like the Texans, you see the solid they did. I mean, I don't. JJ Watt probably doesn't get 15 and a half a year if he's out there three weeks from now or two weeks from now. So anyway, all right. He is former Jets general manager, former Dolphins executive vice president, um, Mike Tannenbaum. You can find him on ESPN and get up right now. Why don't you tell the people a little bit about the 33rd team too, just because I've been on there now. Um, and it's just such an interesting concept. So why don't you, uh, why don't you give people a little bit of an idea where they can find you as far as that goes? Yeah. Thanks, Albert. It's the 33rd team.com. We have a free newsletter and basically it's just a consortium of a lot of really smart, experienced head coaches, GMs, uh, personnel directors from major uh, power five schools and a whole bunch of really sharp grad students that uh, help put together some very interesting and differentiated uh, reports. And we get people like Wade Phillips critiquing Todd Bowles, game plan of like why it was so successful in the Super Bowl. And then we'll look at things of like what's been the most effective and efficient drafts, um, trades, allocation of resources. Uh, we'll talk about things like clock management. And our standard is if you were having a discussion in a building or on the 3013 Zoom call, it's at a very high level where we all feel at the end of one hour, we've all gotten a little bit better. Yeah. And like I said, I was on one of those calls. It's fantastic. They're doing a great job over there of leveraging the technology that we've all learned over the last year, sort of out of necessity here um, and getting on Zoom and doing videos and those sorts of things. So I, I'd urge everybody to check it out. It's the 33rd team.com. Um, Needham's own Mike Tannenbaum too. We really appreciate you coming out. Thanks, Albert. All right, thanks to Mike. That was fantastic. We're going to jump into the six-pack to wrap up the show. You guys know how this works. Every week I put the call out for questions on Twitter. I pick six. If I pick yours, you get an answer here on the podcast and you get a like on Twitter. That means I hit that little heart. And if I don't give you an answer here, then I might have given you an answer in the mailbag. So check that out at the mmqb.com. Question number one for the week coming from Waddy Daddy. That's at Waddy Daddy 2. Can Urban be successful in Jacksonville? OH. And I'll give you an I.O. and an answer to your question, Waddy Daddy. Yes, he can be successful. The number one reason why he can be successful is the number one reason why he went there. 
which is because he knew going there he'd get Trevor Lawrence. And so it starts with the quarterback. He's going to have his quarterback. That's a huge piece of it. You guys heard off the top how I feel about Trevor Lawrence. But it goes beyond just that. Like I, I think for one thing, he's going to have the advantage that Pete Carroll and John Schneider had early in their time in Seattle that Jimmy Johnson had all those years ago in Dallas. And that is a college coach at a premier program that was competing for the top recruits every year has an incredible amount of background on all of those kids. He knows what they were like as teenagers. He knows where their athletic ceiling is. He knows more about those kids than probably anybody else um, in the NFL. And so his background and knowledge and, and ability to kind of leverage information on those kids, I think is going to give Jacksonville a huge edge in a year when they've got a ton of draft capital. So that's going to help them. He's also going to have some players out there that he coached as collegians, guys like Curtis Samuel, the Carolina Panthers receiver, guys like Malik Hooker, the Indianapolis Colts safety, that he's going to be able to bring in not only to kind of spread the message of his program, but also fill out his roster. He's going to have a defined idea of how they work within his roster, within his systems, because they had been within his systems before. So I think that that puts them in a good position to exploit and best use all the resources they have, all the cap space they have, all the draft picks they have, which again, those were also a huge part of why he went to Jacksonville too. And then number three, I think the program just, I, I think it can work. Like I just do. And I, I think that a lot of it translates to the NFL. And I think if you get the right people in the locker room who can help you sell it, um, you can win pretty quickly, which is going to be a key to, 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 to making it work. But I think through his study of the last of the NFL over the last year and a half, Urban learned a lot. So I do think it can work in Jacksonville. Um, you know, some of it scheme wise, you know, there's going to be some adjustments, and that's going to be kind of down come down to like how guys like Joe Cullen and Brian Schottenheimer and um, you know and and, and Daryl Bevel, um, you know, what they're able to do from a system standpoint. But I, I think that there's a lot of reasons to believe why Urban Meyer can be successful in Jacksonville. Question number two from NFL Scout. That's at Patriots Daily Three. Who are the top five people in the Patriots hierarchy outside of Bill Belichick and Dave Ziegler? I came up with a list of five names for you. Some of them will be obvious. Some of them will be less obvious. So, you know, right now, the way every scouting department breaks down, you basically have a number two. To me, that number two right now is Elliot Wolf, who is a high-level executive in both Cleveland and Green Bay, um, the son of Ron Wolf. I think that, you know, he would be at the right there, you know, with anybody else on that list. Then I give you the two guys that run college and pro scouting. That's something that, you know, again, exists in every NFL building. Steve Cargile on the pro side, Brian Smith on the college side. Those two guys are very important too. Then I'll give you a name that's a little bit of a wild card, and that's Matt Groh, who's their national scout. I think he's been a little bit more involved in high-level stuff than in the past. He's Al Groh's kid. He's obviously got a lot of background with Belichick because of that. So Matt Groh would be another name that I would give you. And then the fifth name I would give you would be Josh McDaniels, which I think is a pretty obvious one. He's not the head coach of the offense, but he's as close to head coach of the offense as you get. So those would be the five names that I would give you from the on the football side. This is, of course, excluding the business side, excluding the crafts. And it's in part because it's so important that they build the roster back up over the next year or two. So again, Elliot Wolf, Brian Smith, Steve Cargile, Macro, Josh McDaniels. There you have it. Question number three from Adam Wells. That's at ABW0409. If Washington misses on a quarterback this year, would they have who would they have been linked to in free agency? Um, I think Adam, based on the on Washington's um, actions thus far, my sense is they're going to get a quarterback that's going to allow them to continue to tread water at the position if they cannot land a big fish like a Russell Wilson or a Deshaun Watson or someone in the draft. What does that mean? Well, I think functionally that's going to mean probably they wind up throwing Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen into a comp competition with maybe a Ryan Fitzpatrick. That's one name I would watch or somebody who has background in Scott Turner's system, like a Cam Newton or a Ted, Teddy Bridgewater. If he's released, I don't think they bring in Teddy at the number that he's at now, but if he was released um, or I guess if he was willing to take a pay cut and then maybe traded, um, then I could see it happening. So um, those would be the guys that I would sort of have on my list, you know, and, and again, like I know it's not exciting to look at that, but you know, the last thing you want to do is take a big swing on a guy who 
is like maybe the 12th or 14th quarterback, best quarterback in the league. I think you want to do better than that. And the way you do that is, you know, in the interim, you find a way to be competitive with the guys that you have and find guys who, you know, aren't going to clog up your decision-making a decision where you aren't going to have to make a commitment to like, this is our guy for the next three years. Um, you know, you, you find a guy that, 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 that won't force you to make that commitment that you can sort of tread water and compete with which, you know, again, helps you get to the guy that maybe you really want. Question number four from Sweetbriar Vintage, that's at SB Vint Furniture. Who makes the Pro Bowl with their new team, J.J. Watt or Carson Wentz? I'm going to answer this question, J.J. Watt. And the key thing here for me is, yes, Pro Bowl. Do I think Carson Wentz can come back and be a pretty functional, like, middle-of-the-road quarterback? Yeah. It's a great environment he's going into. He's got good young skill position players around him, like Jonathan Taylor and Michael Pittman. A very good offensive line, even though they still need to figure out the left tackle thing. And a really good coaching staff. You know, Frank Reich does a great job with quarterbacks. I think Marcus Brady is going to prove himself to be a really good coordinator. So, like, I, like, I think there's a lot going for Carson Wentz there. But do I think he's got the ceiling in 2021 that J.J. Watt does? Probably not. J.J. is going to a system he's familiar with. Again, playing for Vance Joseph, a coach he's familiar with, playing opposite Chandler Jones. I think there's a chance that J.J. could get back to double-digit sacks, which would give him a shot to be in the Pro Bowl next year. Not saying Carson Wentz can't do it, just that I think it's more likely, at least in the short term, that J.J. gets there. Question number five from Daniel Trugman. That's at D. Trugman. Two, do you think future contracts will be structured differently to not presume steady rises in cap numbers. It seems like a lot of issues this year may have come up because of it. That's a very astute observation, Daniel. That is true that a lot of issues are coming up because these contracts were built for the cap to rise. And what happens when the cap doesn't rise? Well, it's a little bit like, you know, cars speeding along on like a five lane highway and the, and, and, and everybody anticipates a speed limit going up to like 75. And then all of a sudden, Nope, we're going down to three lanes and the speed limit is 55. So you can see where the bottleneck could be created in that sort of situation. And I, I do think that there will be some teams that will continue to, to do contracts this way as a means of survival because maybe their cap space is tight and they need to do it that way. Um, but I think if teams have their druthers, if they've got some breathing room against the salary cap, they'll try and build contracts flat for the next two or three years. And that's going to be one of the challenges. We don't know what the cap's going to look like in 2022, 2023, because to get the cap where it's going now, they may borrow back some more against future years. And the new TV deals aren't going to kick into the cap formula for a couple of years. So I think it's an astute observation by you. And if teams can afford to do that, can afford to have flat cap numbers on those deals, then I think they will. The other thing, of course, to watch for is a lot of one-year deals and bridge contracts. Question number six from Craig Ginsburg. That's at Craig Adam G. Is this to make a break year for Daniel Jones? Should the Giants be bringing in some competition for him this year, similar to the Bears bringing in Nick Foles? Craig, I do not think that they do that. I think that they spend this year assessing where they're at with Daniel Jones. Year three typically is a critical one for the quarterback. Why? Well, since the new CBA went in, it's sort of been logistically necessary um, that you make some sort of declaration on your quarterback after year three. That's going back all the way to the draft class of 2011, which from a quarterback standpoint in the first round, that was Cam Newton, uh, Jake Locker, Blaine Gabbert, and who am I missing? And, uh, and, and Christian Ponder. So, like, I think you look at, like, sort of that, you know, you look at, you, you know, you, 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 you look at where you are right now with Daniel Jones. After year two, like, I think you've got an idea of where you're at. After year three, you want to be ready to make a full-on decision because at that point, you're going to have to make a decision on the fifth-year option and whether to extend him because he'll be eligible for a long-term deal at that point. Do you exercise the option and that option now, those options now are going to be fully guaranteed do you give them a contract extension? So one way or another after this year, the Giants are going to have to make a declaration to Daniel Jones on Jones himself. And that means you're either telling him we're, we're, we're good with you. We're going forward with you. Like we're, you're our guy that's extending him long-term. You're, you're telling him we, we like what we're seeing, but we need to see a little more. That's just exercising the fifth year option and not extending him or we really think we missed on you, which would be not extend, not 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 exercising the fifth year option. So, you know, my sense of it would be that, you know, where you're at with the, where 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 Daniel Jones is at contractually with the Giants can tell you where the the way the Giants will probably operate with him, which is 
spend 2021 trying to get an answer on who Daniel Jones is as a quarterback and what you're going to do with him in 2021. That, of course, is absent. You know, maybe they have a chance at a big swing, you know, taking a big swing on somebody like Russell Wilson or Deshaun Watson, which is a place a lot of teams are in right now. Appreciate you guys coming out. I want your feedback. We're trying to put your feedback to work. I did hear the feedback on the music, so give me more of that. Like, we, 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 we implemented the music under the takeaways uh, this was probably you know three or four months ago when we went through some changes to the show when Gresh was on his way out. We thought that like listening to maybe my voice for 15, 20 minutes straight could be a little monotonous, so we threw the music in there. But if you guys really don't like it, we'll consider taking it out. So keep your comments coming on that. Um, and you guys know where to find me with those comments. It's at Albert Breer on Twitter, at Albert underscore Breer on Instagram, at Albert R. Breer on Facebook and listen to all of our shows. You guys know where to find all of our shows. I'm sure you do. It's not just my show. It's also the Monday morning podcast, which is on the old MMQB feed hosted by Gary. It's Jenny and Connor's podcast, uh, the week side podcast. And of course my podcast, we're all on Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple podcast, wherever you guys get your shows. We are there same time next week. Talk to you guys then.